Well, we are beginning a new sermon series today, and it's based on the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Throughout this sermon, Jesus declares what the kingdom of God looks like and how citizens of that kingdom, that's us, are supposed to live their lives. Now, the kingdom of God can be defined as God's reign inside human hearts. It's when we turn from our own selfish, sinful ways and we surrender our lives and allow God to come and rule and reign in us and through us. And when we do that, that changes everything. How many of you know this interesting scientific fact? When, you, when your eyes look at the world and the image that you see of that world hits your eyes, that the image you see is actually upside down. Did you know that? It is. Don't ask me to get too detailed about how that works because I'm not a scientist, but I've read that somehow it's the process of refraction of light and, and going through a convex lens that causes the images we see to be flipped so that the image as it hits our retina is completely upside down. And then if something else didn't happen after that, you'd be looking at me right now wondering how I can preach while standing on my head. And I'd be looking at you wondering why you're, not, why you're sitting on the ceiling. But something amazing happens when those images hit our brain. Our brain is smart enough to know that something just isn't right. And it takes that sensory information it makes it fit with what it already knows to be true about the world, and it turns those images that we see right side up again. You will hear some teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that seem upside down from the way we see things working in the world in which we live. But the truth is that sin has, has inverted our spiritual eyesight and our moral compass so we see things flipped and upside down. And we've gotten so used to our world that, that we get used to seeing it that way. We, it seems normal. It seems right to us. But when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord starts working on our spiritual eyesight. He begins renewing our minds so that we begin to see things right side up. We begin to see things the way God intends them to be in the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God isn't just some different world that's way out there somewhere and unattainable. No, it's, it's real. And it's already breaking into our world. It's possible. It's expected. And one day it will be fulfilled in all its fullness in all of God's creation. Today we're going to start at the beginning with a part of the sermon that we often call the Beatitudes. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A lot of what we just heard sounds kind of backwards and upside down, doesn't it? But remember, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. And I'm going to dig into each one of these eight blessings separately today. But before we start that, there are a couple of other things that I want to say. First, the Beatitudes aren't some sort of a la carte menu. You can't pick and choose the ones that sound easy and ignore the ones that sound too hard. You can't say something like, hey, I'm all right with hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but you know what? Mercy just isn't my thing, so forget that. You can't say, I'll try and be pure in heart, but peacemaking? No way. No, nope, it doesn't work that way. All of the Beatitudes go together, along with the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Together, they paint an image of what an individual follower of Christ looks like and what the image of the whole church is supposed to look like. The Beatitudes describe the ideal disciple and their rewards, both present and future. The person whom Jesus describes in this passage has a very different quality of character, a very different lifestyle than those who are still outside the kingdom. And the other thing that I want to say is a word about the word blessed, which is repeated several times in this passage, as you heard. Now, it can mean happy, but not that kind of surface sort of happiness, the worldly sense of the world happy, which is dependent on external things or external circumstances. No, this is much more of a deep, down, joy of the Lord kind of happiness that carries connotations also of fortunate, privileged, salvation, health, well-being, even peace. And because these are not just goals for individual believers to aspire to, although they are that, but they are also the marks of the church, that this is what the church is supposed to look like and act like. And because Jesus is both proclaiming the already and the not yet aspects of the kingdom of God, I want to share with you that I once had a seminary professor who sometimes used the translation that sounded something like this, blessed are you. He said, no, you really understand. You get it. You've really got it going on when you mourn, when you're meek, when you show mercy, because that's what it's all about. And so the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that sounds pretty upside down, doesn't it? In our world, not very many people think of themselves as blessed when they're poor. And although Matthew adds the words in spirit, he's not precluding those who are actually poor monetarily. Being poor in spirit doesn't have anything to do with our salary, our bank account, our stock portfolio, or our 401k. 
Jesus says that when our spirits are poor before God, we are blessed. And being poor in spirit is a realization of how much we really need God. It's a realization that without God, we are nothing. The poor in spirit are under no illusion that they could ever possibly hope to pay their way to God. Because you see, there's this huge gap between our righteousness and the amount of righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's so big, we might call it a chasm. And there was no way to cross over that chasm from our side, the side of our own sinfulness, to the side of God's own righteousness until Jesus came and built a bridge across that chasm out of the beams of his cross upon which he was crucified in order to pay for our sins. And this, my friends, is a priceless gift. We could never afford to pay that price on our own. The poor in spirit have no illusion that they're doing pretty good on their own, keeping up their side of the bargain with God. No, they are like the poor tax collector who went up to the temple to pray but didn't dare look his eyes up to heaven. Instead, cast them down and beat his breast and said, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Those who are poor in spirit are not like the religious leader in the story who also went up to the temple to pray, but instead he thanked God for making him such a fine, upstanding citizen. He thanked God that he wasn't like that poor, miserable slob of a tax collector down there. Happy are those who come to God poor, knowing they can't pay their own debt, knowing they don't have any way to earn their entrance into heaven on their own. Theirs is the kingdom of God. The second beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And again, the kingdom of God flips what we normally believe on its head, doesn't it? We think that people who are happy are happy. But Jesus says people who mourn are the happy ones. Now, usually when we think of mourning, we think of when we grieve the loss of someone that we love who has died. But there are different kinds of mourning. I mean, we live in a beautiful world, and it's filled with so many blessings every day. But there is also a deep underlying current of sadness in the world. Because sin has turned the world upside down from God's original intention. People hurt other people. We exploit one another. We judge, hate, and abuse other people. We leverage other people for our own advantage. And we've been at it so long since Adam and Eve in the garden that we don't even recognize it sometimes anymore. The world doesn't seem all that bad. But sin is the work of the devil. And the devil has come to do one thing, to rob, kill, and destroy. And all sin leaves in its wake is sorrow and mourning. And the biggest grief of all is the way that sin has separated us from our Creator. And that's the mourning Jesus had in mind here. When we mourn both our sin and the sin in the world around us, when we grieve the devastation we have done against other people, when we grieve the separation sin has caused between ourselves and God, when we repent with tears of sincerity, then we are happy. Because, Jesus says, 
It is in that condition that we will be comforted by God. Next, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness, again, is not typically an attribute that most people ascribe to, especially in this country. We think of someone who is meek as weak and timid, a milquetoast kind of a person. Early in the last century, in the early 1900s, there was a comic strip called The Timid Soul, and it featured a character named Casper Milktoast. And he was described as a man who spoke softly and got hit with a big stick. <laughs> That's the kind of guy we think of when we use the word meek. But the word that Jesus used for meek had a very different meaning in its original language. The Greek word for meek doesn't mean weakness or timidity or people-pleasing at all. It is a word that was used to describe a war horse that had been trained to instantly obey the commands of its rider. Meekness is strength under control, power coupled with gentleness. Meekness doesn't turn us into wallflowers. It turns us into war horses ready to obey God's direction with the slightest pull of the harness. Meekness is strength centered in God. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus was meek, but he wasn't weak. He was self-controlled, he was humble, and he lived completely under the authority of the Father. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37 in this beatitude where the wicked are contrasted with those who trust in the Lord. And the psalmist tells us that one day evil is going to be destroyed and those who do evil too, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Jesus next said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is describing an inner longing for righteousness, a yearning to be right with God, a desire for justice and for wrongs to be made right that is so strong that it can only be called a hunger or a thirst. Jesus talks about righteousness a whole lot in this Sermon on the Mount. He says that the righteous will be persecuted. He says that our righteousness had better exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, who, by the way, were seen as the most righteous people of all back in Jesus' day. And Jesus says that we are not to practice our righteousness in front of other people where we can be seen. We're not to do it for show. Right righteousness is being in right relationship with God and living right according to God's will. And righteousness has at least three dimensions to it. First is the righteousness that is given to us as a free gift by God when we believe in Christ. We often call that justification when we're made right with God. On the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself as if it was his own. And he gives us his righteousness as if it is our own. 
It has absolutely nothing to do with anything we can earn or do. It is only based on what Christ has done, and it is a free gift to those who believe. And because it is the righteousness of God's own Son, it is perfect. And so it far exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness, which so often was just hypocritical and often only for show. The second dimension is what we call sanctification or growing in righteousness. It's becoming more and more like Christ the longer we follow him. It's a growing hunger and thirst inside of us to want to live differently, to live more like Jesus in our thoughts, words, and actions. And there is also a third dimension to righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst for. And that is when we long to see the righteousness of God established in the world around us. We want to see wrongs made right. We want to see justice where there has been injustice, mercy where there has been no mercy, deliverance where there's been oppression, freedom where there's been bondage. And there isn't only one way to accomplish this. There are millions of little ways to accomplish this. And God has equipped every single one of us, every believer there is, uniquely to reach out and make a difference. And so I'd invite you to let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you in how you're being called to make a difference. I'd invite you to participate in one of many ways to reach out through this church. Fill some boxes of food for Project 5000. Serve next Sunday on our Sunday Serve Day in one way, shape, or form. Go out and visit the Compassion International table in the Connection Center today and see how you can make a difference. Mother Teresa said, we cannot all do great things but we can all do small things with great love. That makes a difference. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy flows out of our compassion. It comes when we understand where someone else is coming from. It comes from an ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and where we can therefore empathize with them. It's feeling the pain of someone else. It's being moved by someone else's sorrow. It's suffering when someone else is suffering. And out of our compassion, there comes a response. Mercy is never interested in only making us look good. The only important thing is helping the person in need. Mercy recognizes a person's need, and it has compassion. And mercy, whether it's helping the poor or sharing the gospel, sees a need, and it always wants to help in the best possible way. For just giving money to someone who really needs help finding gainful employment or who needs help learning how to budget the money they already have isn't always really helping. In fact, it can be hurting. Mercy instead seeks to meet the real need, and to make a lasting, indif a lasting difference. And when we come to understand how much mercy we have received from God and how desperate we are for God's mercy each and every day of our lives, then we will share mercy with others. If we live by mercy, then we will live with mercy all the time. No one can truly receive God's mercy and have their heart void of mercy for other people because God has been merciful to us 
we look for ways to be merciful to others. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, when we hear those words, pure in heart, we often first think of sexual purity or moral purity, and that is definitely included in the meaning here. But Jesus is talking about an even more inclusive, deeper purity. He's talking about our relationship with God that is lived out with a singleness of purpose and sincerity of heart that goes to the very core of who we are, to the core of our being. And it is only God's power that can let us do that. Jesus cleanses our heart from sin, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a new, transformed life in which our hearts beat only for God. And the more we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the purer our heart becomes. Jesus is talking about that glorious day when the pure in heart will stand unafraid before the throne of God and be with him forever. But he is also talking about seeing God in the here and the now. He's talking about seeing God active and powerful in our life. He's talking about seeing God as we deeply fellowship with God. He's talking about walking in the Spirit. And as, as we do that, we'll see God more active in our life. We'll see him use us with his power. We'll see miracles from God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is a God of peace, and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. God sent Jesus to break down walls that sin had caused so that we could live in peace with God. And God desires that we live in peace with one another. Now I know relationships with other people can be trying, can't they? They're difficult at times, hard but developing a kingdom character will make us peacemakers, not peace breakers. And this is about our character, not necessarily about the results we achieve. And we, we can't always um, dictate a peaceful outcome because others play a role in that too, don't they? But the Apostle Paul admonishes us in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as... As it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, there are several qualities of a peacemaker that I want to share with you. One, a peacemaker walks in humility. So humble yourself. Be honest with yourself. Is pride getting in the way of peaceful relationships with other people? Two, a peacemaker values other people. Doing unto others as we want them to do to us is always a good place to start in valuing other people. Three, a peacemaker goes directly to another person to work out peace between the two. Doesn't talk about it with other people. Four, a peacemaker is careful with what they say and how they say it. They think before speaking. They wait before hitting the send button on that email or posting to their social media account. Five, a peacemaker walks in the Spirit. Again, as I said, we cannot do this in our own power and strength. It is only by God's grace and through God's power. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a price to be paid for being faithful in the kingdom, 
and that is that we may be slandered, hated, falsely accused, and persecuted for it. Now, Jesus isn't saying go looking for persecution, but he is saying that we should be aware that it may happen and that he is also saying that when it does happen, we are blessed. Why? Because we are being faithful to spreading the good news of the kingdom. Jesus wasn't spared persecution, and neither were his first followers, nor are millions of Christians throughout our world still today. As we stand on the truth of God's word in our culture today, we will need to be willing to be considered out of touch, old-fashioned, or called much worse names than that if we are to be true. Jesus did not say that we would be persecuted for relevancy's sake, but for righteousness' sake. There is a price to be paid if we are to be kingdom influencers in our world And we'll talk more about what kingdom influence looks like next week, so you'll want to come back and hear that message as well. But as you reflect on these beatitudes or blessings from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I want you to remind yourself over and over that these are the characteristics of kingdom living. I want you to open yourself up to the Spirit to transform you into the likeness of Christ. And I'll leave you with these words from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen? Would you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks for sending your son who preached this greatest sermon ever preached about what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Oh God, we look forward to these next weeks as we study this sermon together. Use it, Lord, to change us, to mold us, to shape us, to transform us into your people so that we look more and more like Jesus Christ as individuals, as a church called Anderson Hills, and as your church universal so that whenever people see us or your church, they see you and are drawn to you to give you glory and honor and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen.